Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea, and Nymphus, and the church which is in his house. When this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul, remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. Father, we pray one more time that you would bless this message to the hearers and to the doers of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. All right, now we're at the end of an amazing book written by Paul to some Christians that he had never met, to a church he had never been to, and he's writing not from his hotel room. He's not writing from holiday or from vacation. He's writing from a prison in Rome, awaiting to meet uh, Nero and ultimately to be beheaded. He's covered a lot of different topics and shared so much of his heart and passion in this short letter. And he's, his, his heart's uh, passion was for God's people, no matter who they were, no matter what culture they were in, no matter what country they were in, to be grounded in absolute truth and reality. So much of religion is what we call airy-fairy. So much of it is all mystical and, and however you feel and whatever you want, whereas the Bible has absolute reality that we that helps us to come back to reality of what we're really dealing with. I mean, there is the phil- philosophical um, a view that all men and all women and all people are good at core. Have you heard that before? And that's not reality at all. We don't need walls. We need love. That's not true at all. Or else every one of those people need to leave their doors open at night. So there is a lot of airy-fairy stuff out there. And the Bible establishes that all men are wicked. And the only way to be able to live amongst wicked people is to have rules, laws, and expectations of one another. Don't ever let anybody tell you you ought to not have expectations. That's insanity. I expect the guy on the other side of the road coming at me to stay in his lane, amen? So expectations are not evil. So there are expectations, and God gave us the expectations to have of one another. Now, he finishes up this letter with, uh, uh, let me just start off. I wanted to remind you of the verses that I started off with back there in Colossians chapter 1. And the whole purpose of this letter was to give us a, a desire that Jesus would pre, be preeminent. So let's, let's watch this where it says, And he, Jesus, is before all things. And he ought to be, ought to be before breakfast. He ought to be before entertainment. He ought to be before everything in our life that we think is important. He should be more important. And by him, all things consist. He, if, you're, if your car got you to a church tonight, it's because God held it together. Amen. By him, all things consist, and he's the head of the body, the what? The church. He's the head of every church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, he is all of that, so that he might have the preeminence. Now, uh, he now is finishing up the letter with some salutes, some encouragement, some, some just... Um, uh, words of, of encouragement and, and uh, exhortation to some uh, fellow workers and fellow Christians uh, in this letter. Now, these final thoughts are, now I want to go back to what I talked about last time we were looking at it is, um, the five things that he talked to 12 men 
that he lists here in the ministry with them. He says, number one, you guys keep doing the work of the ministry. Did all of them keep doing the work of the ministry? No, there was one that we know of that sort of pulled away and went, went back to the world. What was his name? Demas. So Paul knows that Christians have to be encouraged to stay going because we naturally, the devil will give us every excuse to pull away. So he says, do the work of the ministry. Secondly, make sure you work together. Don't think that your team is only you. It's not all about you. It's about the gospel and about others and about the Christ. Work together, not alone, but as a team. Salute everybody where we're going to go tonight. Greet everybody as family. Fourthly, pass the scriptures around and learn them well, Paul says. And lastly, depend upon grace. Now I want to talk about, and it would be well for us to take this same advice as a church. Now, in Colossians 4, 7, 4, 7, he starts off Tychicus, and he mentions Onesimus, and he mentions Aristarchus, and he mentions uh, Jesus, who's also known as Justice, and Epaphras, and so on and so forth. And when he talks about these guys, we can learn, we learn a lot from these names, and I want to say these these, uh, people that Paul mentions, sometimes briefly, sometimes a little bit more detailed based on different scriptures or whatever, they're recorded for all eternity. What if your name was written down in stone somewhere? Uh, Craig Ledbetter, not just that he lived and died in Ireland, but it actually recorded what my life was at that moment. Uh, when you think of David, what do you think of? What's the first thing that comes to your mind about David? Hmm? A shepherd, king, what'd you say, Paul? Bathsheba, yeah, all right. Notice, you know, what are you going to be remembered for? Amen. Goliath, good. And and usually most people think of the good things, thankfully. But a lot of people sometimes go, yeah, Bathsheba, you know, and all that stuff. He had to run from his son. Yeah, there's some bad. What are you going to be remembered for? So these are recorded for all eternity. By the way, so is your name written down somewhere. It's going to be there forever. It's called in the Lamb's Book of Life. So each name has the reputation of a real person. If I can't emphasize that enough. Each one, and we have Demas in there, and Demas is just as saved as you or I are, and yet he loved this present world. Can you imagine how embarrassing? That's the last thing that's written about Demas. How is, you know, you may be on fire for God now, but two years from now, you may be backslid, back to drinking, uh, um, uh, doing your own thing, and then die. And all the Christians remember, yeah, so-and-so, went back to the world. Wouldn't that be an awful thing to be remembered of? Reputation counts. I'll talk about that more in a minute. They had some amazing titles, didn't they? One was called Beloved Brother. Man, if you ever got that title, you're a rich, rich person. Faithful minister, fellow servant, fellow prisoner, fellow workers, comfort, beloved physician. These were all their titles emphasizing their reputation, what they were known for. Now, something else, they were all bivocational or they were just living by faith. Every one of these men didn't have a full-time job and just on Sunday do a few things, which is good. And we got to have people who work. But in the ministry, you got to have people who are willing to set aside their career, who are willing to set aside their plan and follow a heart call that they know that they know God's calling them to do. And these men put everything away so they could go and preach and serve God and teach and start churches. That is not a shame. Don't ever, if somebody ever does it, if your own family member says, we're going to, I'm quitting my job, 
I'm going to raise support. I'm going to be a missionary in Afghanistan. That's, that is the highest calling you can ever do. It's the most risky. It is the most probable to fail. But that's what these men were doing, and it is a great calling. And these were called to work together. Not one of them were supposed to just go off and do their thing, go start a church, and hit go. No, they work together as teams. You will self-destruct on your own. All of these men were part of Paul's success. Sometimes they weren't just working their own team. They were building up to help Paul. And Paul needed lots of helpers. Uh, not, not everyone, as we say, stayed in the ministry. And it even gets worse than that. There's never enough doing the ministry. Would you agree? Ireland's lost today, not because, not necessarily because people don't want the gospel, but because there aren't people called, who are answering God's call to go preach the gospel. How are they going to believe unless, except they hear, and how are they going to hear except somebody goes and preaches? We need some goers. So what is your reputation? I want to ask you because when people think of you and they think of your reputation, what do they think about? That's a scary thought. That's a terrifying thought. I mean, I'm not even going to go through the list of things, but uh, what do people think about you? You know, most people struggle with the view of themselves. Oh, I'm ugly. Oh, nobody likes me. Oh, and, and that's uh, that's torture. Other people struggle with other people. What other people say about them? That's why it'd be a curse for them to be on Facebook because I didn't get any likes today. My Snapchat died. If you're desperate for people to approve of you. You're worried about what other people think. But what about God? What does he think of you? So, now, let's get into our message. That was just one last thing I wanted to say about the last time we were in this study. When we come, look at verse 15, and we'll come through here, and we'll look at these last few things here, four things, I think, on the final instructions for the Christians. Number 15 says, Salute the brethren, which are in Laodicea, Nymphus, and the church which is in his house. Now, when he says salute the brethren, they had a mindset, the Colossians, of saluting one another. They loved one another. It was normal. And by the way, it is absolutely normal to show love toward one another. Amen? This should not be a church where everybody's stiff. Hello, Brother Darren. Definitely don't want to come in contact with him. No, when, when he's, Paul was trying to remember, remind them, hey, treat everybody as family. Now, it begins in your church. It would be a shame if you treat other Christians better than you treat the ones that are in your church, amen? If you came into this church and you never not shake hands or never just said, man, good to see you, if you never did that and yet you're with somebody else and, oh, brother, how's it going? Yeah, boom, boom, you know. If, if you're so comfortable with others, I worry. Somebody's not able to show love where it really counts. Salute the brethren. Go out of your way to greet in love. Not just say hi. Not just go, hey, how's it going when you don't really care how it's it going. Go to 2 Corinthians 13, 12. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 13, 12. I'll start with Darren, if you don't mind. 2 Corinthians 13, 12. And I can't wait to, I'd love to hear him preach on this verse. 2 Corinthians 13, 12. <clears throat> <laughs> Go ahead, Darren. Now, we're not going to demonstrate, okay? <laughs> but in a lot of cultures, they have grown up that way. Now, we're it's kind of hard to do that. Would you agree? Eric, keep your distance, amen. 
You forewarned them? Okay, all right, I don't want to think about it. Anyway, in the Western culture, we don't, but in Spain, I mean, they're doing it on the of France. A lot of cultures have that, and there's nothing wrong with it. Because that word holy, all right? It's not on the, it's not on the lips. It's not like type of kiss. It is a holy kiss. It's a greeting kiss. And it has been for ages. It is a, it is an expression of your family. Um, and I kiss my grandkids, kiss my wife. I kiss family, amen? So we've got to elevate how we treat one another. I understand in our Western world, it's hard to go and just kiss the guy on the cheek. I don't care who they are, but I'll hug you. And some people are like, I can't do that. I understand. You're just stiff. But do you know how to express love? Do you know how to just show it towards somebody? Do they think it's just professional? Or do they know that they're your family? So go out of your way to greet one another in uh, in, in love. Go to 1 Peter 3, 8, uh, Miss Sherry. 1 Peter 3, 8. Wow. So love is brethren. Love like your family. Do you think we have something to work on there? I think we do. I Listen, don't just go to church or go through life or even come to church without greeting each other and encouraging one another and showing love specifically to Christians. Why? Because um, uh, every believer is family and needs love. Uh, this is the commandment for the local church, by the way. Uh, I meet somebody and they're saved. I was on the plane. I tried every time when I'm sitting down next to somebody to give them the gospel. Sometimes they're like, mm, not interested. But there was a, uh, a young lady sitting next to me on the plane coming from JFK all the way to London. And um, she said she was saved. Now she's wacko. She started, I'm part of a, um, um, uh, what, was the, what was the group she was with? Some group that just said, um, uh, show love ministries. That was what she was with. So I asked her, are you really saying, no, I didn't say that. But anyway, I asked her for a testimony. She said, I got saved at 15 years old. She's only like 22 or whatever. And uh, I realized I was a sinner. Somebody just told me the gospel. My parents tried to tell me the gospel. I wouldn't listen to them because they were my parents. But this other person gave me the gospel and I got saved. And now I just want to show the love of Jesus everywhere. Well, she's family. She's saved, all right? Now, she wants to just, she's in the ministry, just goes around and shares the love of Jesus. Now, whatever that means, I kind of didn't pursue it. But my statement is, she's going to heaven. She's in the same family, and I, man, I was glad to meet another Christian. Um, it is, it is, it is important that we don't have airs of, well, we're better than anybody else. We're not. It's by the grace of God, we're even alive. So, this is a commandment that you show, and Paul says, make sure you show love and salute the brethren over in another church. And also make sure you encourage Nymphus and the churches at his house. Make sure these churches get along and love one another. But it is a command for the local church that this is where we begin. Um, make sure that this is the place you show the most love, is my point. A lighthouse is brightest at its, at its, at its center point, isn't it? And if you're going to have the love that Christ wants us to have, not only for the brethren, but for the lost, it ought to be brightest here. Does that make sense? Same, so how can you do that? 
Name me a way that you can show love to the brethren. Somebody tell me. Okay, help a brother in need. Amen. And you find out something financially or just encouragement. Yes, ma'am. Some people actually want to tell you how they're doing, and it's okay to actually take time and listen because that can make the difference uh, in their life is to actually somebody cares. What else? Yes, Nico. Excellent. I think that's excellent. Don't only show love at church, but during the week. Uh, find out how they're doing. Um, you know, uh, uh, I can tell you, I won't use names, but there are people who go missing and they wonder. And I like, when I call them, they're like, you're bothering me, Pastor, because uh, they're backslid. But, you know, when you text and phone, it really means something to them. Really care. It really, really is important. Can I say this? The way that you encourage Christians the most is by being with them. If if Nita has got family home for Christmas, and she fixes a big dinner and nobody shows up, how do you think Mama's going to feel? Come on, talk to me. What if everybody says thanks, Mom, and then takes it and goes sits down in front of the TV instead of sitting at the table with everybody else? What if they take it up to their room? What if they don't even show up and they go eat down at McDonald's? Um, how does that make the family feel when some of the family don't want to be with other family? And it's a shame that there's not 50 more people here tonight, amen? Because it sure would encourage us, wouldn't it? I got three amens out of that. <laughs> be together. Pray for one another. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that sh- actually encourage? You know, it, I can tell what somebody's praying for me. I don't know anybody, uh, you know, I don't know what you're doing, but I can tell somebody's been praying for me. And people ought to know they're being prayed for. That shows great love. So when he says salute the brethren, he's not just saying, say hi. It's much more than that. Pass the scriptures around. Verse 16, he goes uh, He goes there and he says, and when this epistle, this letter is read among you, cause, make sure that it is read also in the church of Laodiceans about 40 miles away. And they likewise, make sure you get the epistle that's there and Laodicea, make sure you get a copy of their letter and you read it. Pass the scriptures around. They didn't have a complete Bible like you and I have. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have apps. They just had pieces of paper, parchment. So some thoughts I had, get into the whole Bible. I, I think a lot of people only get in where they like and where they're comfortable. But read your Bible. Learn every page He's not saying, oh, just get the Bible out. Make sure you get the Bible in. And then once you've read this thing, then make sure somebody else reads it. I would ask this, okay? Um, if, 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 if you could see the freedom and the, the just the, the um, what do I want to say, the treasure or the prize, let's put it that way. If you realize the prize that you have of having the Bible in your lap, in your language, if you saw that as a prize, a treasure, like David wrote in Psalms, he says it is a priceless more worth than all the silver in the world. If you realize that, you'd go, and there's over 2 billion people who have bits and pieces, if any, of the Scripture. And it would burden you, saying, we got to pass this around. we got to get this around. There are, there are 
people who are growing up in Ireland who are 18, 19, 20 years old, and they don't know one verse of Scripture. Ireland is a pagan, heathen nation. What does pagan mean? They do not know God. That's all that means. And if you, we've got New Testaments, we've got John and Romans, we've got bits and pieces. Get it out, okay? If there was another church, say if Brother Dan's over in, in, in McCroom and he has no scriptures for his people, the Irish can't even get, wouldn't it be important for us to say, let's get him some scriptures? Now we've, we've, he's, we've been transferring, he's got scriptures. But that's the burden, as Paul's saying, make sure that Laodicea gets a copy of this letter. Make sure that people get copies of the Bible. Uh, I thought he said, when I first got saved, uh, I was, I don't know who mentioned it to me or whatever, but I started to make my own copy. I copied out Matthew. I copied out the book of Job. I did Genesis and I did Hebrews. You say, why'd you pick those books? I have no idea. I thought they were just cool. The beginning, I thought they were just cool, so I did it. Genesis was torturous because after about chapter 11 or 12, I went, do I want to finish this? Because <laughs> it was taking a long time. But, that's how they made copies. They made hand copies and passed them on. You will respect the Bible if you ever just copy out one book. It will blow your mind. Try Proverbs. I highly recommend just write out your own book of Proverbs. Don't change any words, <laughs> but copy out your own. Make your own copy and pass the scriptures around. Um, I'd hand it away uh, I was leading somebody to Christ, got them saved. They didn't have a Bible, and I gave them that New Testament that I just led them to Christ with. It was a 21-year-old Bible, you know, these leather-covered New Testaments. I just had to read that, walked away. <laughs> got to go buy another one. But I wanted to pass it on, amen? Look, think about these names. I don't know if you've ever um, thought about some of these names, but John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe, I'm actually reading a biography about him right now, John Wycliffe was an amazing Catholic priest who got converted. And before the Reformers really got started, he was called the Morning Star of the Reformation. Before people actually took on the Catholic Church, he stood up and said, every Englishman needs a copy of the Scriptures. And they hunted him, and they he was a top professor at Oxford. They threw him out of Oxford. He stood before Parliament trying to get them to make a law that would allow English that the Bible be English, and they 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 uh, rejected him. So he sat down, and in two years, two years he translated. He was using Latin into English. I mean, he worked nearly eighteen hours a day translating, and it didn't get finished before he died. But he did it while he was being uh, running away from people who were trying to not only silence him but to kill him. He was so burdened that the Eng that the English speaking people had a Bible in their language. Another guy named William Tyndale took Wycliffe's translation and he went back to the Hebrew and the Greek and he did the Bible in English but from the proper source and they burned him at the stake for it. As a matter of fact, on the while he was up there and as they're burning him, as they're lighting the fire, he just started preaching and he says, oh God, let the king of England open his eyes and he will see the value of the word of God. They got up there and they put a rope around his neck and they choked him to death because they didn't want him to preach. That's a man, huh? Maybe so, amen. Maybe that was the grace of God. 
But the point being, what's he up there for? Because he wanted people to get the Scriptures. He wanted to pass around the Scriptures, get them into the common man's language. Martin Luther... Martin Luther spent somewhere around four or five years translating the Bible into German. He didn't finish. It was an intense amount of work. But what did he want? He wanted his people, the Germans, to have the Bible in their language. Uh, A guy named John Huss over in what we call now the Czech Republic. Um, Every one of these men wanted the Bible in their language, and they paid for it, usually with their life. Countless others, I can't tell you how many of them, wanted to get the Scriptures into people's hands. The reason why we're losing our rights today, the reason why the government is imposing sin onto people is because nobody knows the Bible. Only the Bible makes free men. End of story. Governments don't make us free. The Bible does. Verse 18, jump down to verse 18. He says this. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Now, <clears throat> he says something here that's really precious. He says a couple of things. But Paul evidently, let me start off by, he evidently signed the original epistle with his own handwriting and signature. Can you imagine him in a signed autograph letter from Paul? Imagine that. Now, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, you, if you get something and it's autographed by somebody, it's pretty, it's pretty important, isn't it? Well, Paul's writing at the end, he says, this is my handwriting. This is me making sure you know this came from me. So it was it was priceless, Paul passing that on. He asked, secondly, for people to remember him in prayer because he's in prison at this point. I wish everyone could convey how... I wish I could convey how important this is. Most Christians leave their leadership out of their prayer time because they imagine you're superhuman or you're the pastor. You don't need prayer. And then they wonder why their preachers are boring. Yeah. Paul constantly asked Christians to pray for him. Go back to verse 3, chapter 4 and verse 3. Um, Ruth, I got it. Uh, Colossians 4, 3. So Paul knows what he wants to do. He wants to keep preaching, but he knows he needs prayer. He says, with all, would you please pray for us that we would be faithful? That's a good prayer request. Look at another one. Let's go to Hebrews 13.3, Juliet. Hebrews 13.3. Okay, so how should I pray? He uses several verbs there. Excellent. That's probably the most important, isn't it? Pray like you would want somebody to pray for you if you were in their shoes. But you got to start with, oh, I need to remember so-and-so is going through a time. I need to remember it. Because <laughs> we don't. There's a lot of good stuff in that verse. Uh, Hebrews 10.34, Miss Ruth. Heidi, sorry. I had it right. Hebrews 10.34. 34. 
So I'm going to say that they, I can guarantee you this is one of the proofs that the Hebrew Christians remembered Paul in prayer because they remembered to actually send money to him, to actually help him. You're not going to help somebody you don't care enough to pray about. And if you do, you're not going to give very much or very long. Your heart, when your heart's in something, your money will follow. Amen? Okay. Uh, Acts 12.5. Uh, Miss Jennifer, Acts 12.5. That's cool. So they knew, oh, they didn't go, oh, Peter's an apostle. He could just walk right through. No, he couldn't. No. Everything after Christ, everything was done by prayer and fasting. It's not going to get done otherwise. So pray for your leadership. Then Paul says this. He says, pray that grace would be present. Back there in Colossians chapter 4. He says, grace be with you. Grace be with you. Now, um, we are saved by grace, aren't we? Amen. But does anybody know what grace is? Is grace a, a magical power? What is grace? Okay, God's undeserving favor. That's, a, that's an excellent foundation. But it has to be a little bit more. Because he says, grace be with you. Grace has already been extended to them, but now grace needs to stay with them. So make it a little bit further. Yes, Marcus. Generosity, I like that. Being gracious is being generous. What else? Come on, come on, come on, come on. Barry. Enablement, I I really like that. How is grace enablement? He does, but let's add something. God enables you to live the Christian life in adversity when it's hard. So grace, as far as enablement, is an, a, a, there is a power to it, but it's not magical. It is the closer you are to the Lord and the more you're yielded to him, the more you find this ability. And it is as you yield, you become stronger. Not as you, you fight, but as you yield. And grace takes over. So grace is this, it's kind of like your clutch on your car. If, if your clutch is, is all the way in and you accelerate, you're going nowhere, right? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. But as you reduce, as you release that clutch and you start to push the gas and it engages, listen, as you step back and you allow the Holy Spirit to now fill you, He will always enable you with grace. He will not enable you with force. He will not enable you with with power, where you can walk on water. Grace will enable you to just keep going even when you don't feel like you can. Grace is just a present power that enables you to do things when it's hard. And that's why Paul says, when I'm weak, then I find myself strong. So Paul's praying for that church, knowing that times are only going to get harder for them. And then, just a, a statement here. We need to depend upon grace. Hmm. How can we depend? I kind of gave you, but uh, give me an example where you will need grace. Let me ask it that way. Tony. Excellent. 
So grace helps me to run only, or what does grace enable me to do when I'm weak? Okay, I'm going to say it, to keep going, even though I'm weak. Excellent. Is there something else that grace will allow you to do? Because it is an extension of that. It'll allow you to rest when you want to panic. You go, I can't do this. And then the Holy Spirit says, you're not, I am. You see, grace is so different than we normally live. Um, How about loving without judging? Grace enables to do that because God loved. He judged somebody else instead of me. Amen? Okay. Grace. Pretty pretty important. All right. Last thing. Paul's letter ends, and not all Bibles have this, but it's called a subscript. Paul ends, Paul's letter here ends with, written from Rome to Colossians by Tychicus and Onesimus, two of the men that he writes in the letter. This is a subscript that basically tells who actually penned Paul's words as he dictated them. So, um, it is unbelievable. Let me just, let me just ask you this, alright? How do we know, well, I'll give you my picture in a moment. Let me do this. It is unbelievable such, such great things were accomplished by Paul and yet he did nothing. He was in prison. He couldn't, he couldn't have major conferences. He couldn't go raise the dead. He could not speak to to um, all of these world leaders. He did such great things even from prison. It amazes me that our our hindrances are no hindrance to God. Amen? So this is written from Rome, from prison in Rome, by the way. And it blows me away that Paul, if you met him, Paul says he basically had very poor eyesight. He was, he was probably had broken bones that had never set right. He had whelps on his back that never healed right. He, somebody once said he probably was, looked like an old man, even though he was only 45 or 50 years old. He was hent, uh, humpbacked over. He, he, he was just a, a broken man, and yet he had such power and such, such ability by the grace of God and by the prayers of God's people. Such, so when we think of Paul writing in prison, we think of him writing like that. He's sitting there and he's penning these things and he's taking a sip of his espresso. And it's just, you know, it's all so wonderful. That's not reality. He couldn't even write it in the prison. I guarantee you, he's talking through a hole in the door that they fed him bits of bread and water with. And he's speaking and Onesimus and Tychicus are outside the door trying to keep up with him as he's talking. It's even more amazing. That simple letter became part of the Bible and we read it here 2,000 years later. One little letter. One four-page letter. And it can change lives in 2019. Is that cool? It's so wild. So, all right, conclusion. So ends this epistle. You know what an epistle is? It's the wife of the apostles. Anyway, no. So ends this epistle. It's just a letter. Written to a group of believers over in modern Turkey, people that he had never met. And he's answered some of the doctrinal needs of this church. This church needed to know about the deity of Christ. Solidly was Jesus God. They needed to learn the absolute security of our salvation being in Christ's hands and not our own. 
I'll ask people, I says, how'd you get saved? Oh, God saved me. How are you staying saved? Well, I'm doing my best. What? How did you get saved again? Oh, God saved me. He reached down into the miry clay. He saved my soul. He heard my cry. Amen. How are you staying saved? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really working at it, Pastor. You need to read Colossians. Because eternal security is almost in every verse the absolute security of the believer. Thirdly, he talked about the greatness of the treasure of just knowing Jesus. Just knowing Jesus is more important than knowing anything else. That I may know him, Paul says in Philippians. That I just want to know him more. He says that Christ is far better than any mystical force or philosophy the world offers. Be careful about the world's traditions and philosophies that rob you of your Christian life. He says that Christians are dead here. Really, we're dead. We're dead to the world. The world's dead to us. My flesh, I have to every day put it back into the grave. I have to say, I'm not listening to you today. I'm listening to him. Well, as he dealt with a lot of practical issues like how to mortify your old nature and live in the strength of your new nature, he taught that we can live and must live differently than we than, than now that we're saved. You don't have to lie. As a matter of fact, you ought not lie, ever. He talked about how to live like a Christian wife, how to live like a Christian husband, how to be a servant on the job, how to love one another as Christ loved us. What an amazing, amazing book. And I thought, I was writing this last sentence here this afternoon. I thought, you know, if I taught this again, I could teach everything fresh, all new, without repeating anything I said, because this is the Word of God. There is so much in these pages. And I hope you enjoyed it. But more than enjoying it, I think we need to obey it. Amen? Be doers of the word. So I got got a surprise for you. All right? Do you know what our next study is going to be? (laughs) No. We'll go the opposite. Are you ready? We're going to learn about the God of Job. We're going to sample in the book of Job, Job's struggles with why. Job struggled with what are you doing, God? Job struggles with his friends and their misguided view of God. Many of Job's friends were what are we call prosperity preachers. God wouldn't do this to you. God only blesses his servants. So we're not going to take a long time in Job, but we will look at the God of Job. Because if you look at Job, you're going to get depressed. When you learn what Job learned, it will blow your mind. Okay. 393 as we stand to finish. 393. Take my life and let it be.